0: Song the good the bad and the ugly. Now we're doing this series on Old Testament kings, but when I first thought about good the bad and the ugly, that would be watching some of the golf from our golf tournament yesterday. That was definitely we had some good shots, some bad shots, and some ugly shots. But I want you guys to know the golf tournament, first one we've ever done at EVC, went great yesterday to the glory of God. I want you guys to know that. Over twenty five hundred dollars was raised towards the paying off of our property, and so let's just give God a hand (laughs) for that. And the rest of us had fun. I'm still feeling the effects, trying to get still my strength back in my legs from uh, from everything yesterday. But we're beginning a new series today called "The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly" because these are lessons from life from Old Testament kings. Now, I don't know what your life is like, and as you try to engage God's Word. But as we think about this, here's my heart's desire for this series. As we, a lot of times we stay in the New Testament, we're thinking that the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament are two different gods. That the God of the New Testament is a God of love and grace and mercy, where the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and justice. And I want you to understand, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God. And God desires for us to know that and I my heart's desire for you is that you would fall in love with God's word in whole that you would see the New Testament and the Old Testament as one book that God has given us. Remember when Jesus is quoting, he's quoting the Old Testament. When Paul is talking about all scripture is God-breathed as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he's talking about the Old Testament and seeing that. Matter of fact, you see all these Movies that are coming up that are now the prequel, okay? Started with Star Wars and they kind of went backwards and did the prequel. Now it's X Men and they're doing the prequel. So they're showing what happened before. You know what the Old Testament is? It's the prequel. Because the prequel, the whole thing about what scripture is, is Jesus Christ. He stands in the center. And the Old Testament it tells us stories that are pouring that are pointing towards Jesus Christ and showing us our need for a savior. And as we look at these characters in the Old Testament, I want you to see yourself in those characters. Those characters in the Old Testament are showing us the real humanity of individuals. They're showing their flaws. They're showing their their great points. They're showing their times when they're dependent upon God's spirit and at times where they take things on themselves, just like a lot of people that I kind of know, just like us. We tend to do that. Then the New Testament comes along and is always pointing back to Christ, who again is central. He's the, the central element of the whole story. The prequel points towards Christ and the sequel, the New Testament, points back to who Christ is and what he wants to do in our lives today. But I want you to fall in love with the Old Testament. So many times we think about the Old Testament as something that's unreachable. Maybe it's things that we don't understand we don't understand the history. So as we set this series up today, part of what I'm going to be doing is setting up the history of Israel. And why did they even want a king? But in the Old Testament, we see the nature and humanity of individuals. We see the determination of Noah going against ridicule when people said, You are crazy for building this boat. And I've got to tell you, Allison and I went into Hobby Lobby this week. And we were looking for some craft ideas for her to do during the summer, just some things for her to do. And there was a model of Noah's Ark. And it was so cool. But it was $60, okay? I said, I don't know what it cost Noah, but it's not going to cost me $60. We are not getting that. But Noah went against ridicule as he prophesied what God was going to do with his actual obedience of building the ark. But if you follow that story, then Noah does some things it really brings the character of God down as he gets drunk and his kids have to go in and cover his naked body. There are all kinds of stories in the Old Testament. There are some weird stories, there's some funky stories, there's some bizarre stories, and there's stories of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Some of the good, the faith of Abraham as he set out to go to a place where God would show him a land, he had incredible faith to follow God there. But do you remember how Abraham lied and said that his wife, Sarah, was actually his sister? Not once, but twice. And Abraham didn't even grow up in Arkansas like I did, okay? Having your wife as your sister might be okay in some places. But uh, Jennifer is not my sister. I just want everyone to know that, that that is not the case. So um, so we see the faith of Abraham. We see the endurance of Job. That he praises God even in the midst of... Of pain and suffering. But did Job have questions? Yes. He had questions about God. <clears throat> Excuse me. The deception of Jacob. You see how he overcame that deception to build a whole nation. You see the perseverance of Joseph. That he was, even though he was sold into slavery by his brothers, God gave him the strength to continue to go from the pit where he was thrown to the pinnacle of being the leader of all of Egypt to bring his brothers and sisters back to Egypt to provide for them during famine and for him to actually be able to forgive. We see in the Old Testament all of these characters who have the same characteristics that we have. But we have to begin understanding how the process of the Old Testament all fits together. If we're going to understand these kings that they eventually have in Israel and if we're going to understand how it really applies to our life, you realize... That all the things that are going on in Israel today are really a response to decisions that were made literally hundreds and thousands of years before. So we see the story of the Old Testament, and we're living it out even today. But we first have to ask the question, if we're going to deal with these Old Testament kings, we have to ask the question, why is it that Israel even wanted a king? Remember that Israel, God set it up as what we call a theocracy. In other words, God was the one who was in charge. He was ruling. Now, He always had a representative that He shared His thoughts with and that they would give them to the people. One of those representatives was Moses. And Moses led the people out of captivity, out of Egypt. They had been there for 430 years. Now, that's going to be very important because today we are going to talk about the justice of God. As he, real, as he rules even over the people called the Canaanites, the people that occupied the land where they would one day go. And the Bible tells us that actually God was waiting. The reason the children of Israel stayed in Egypt for 430 years is He was continuing to live out this story among the Canaanites, and He was waiting until their total rebellion of God. It was like a cup that was filling up. And over 430 years, the cup was filling up. Until God finally said, they will not listen, they will be no more, and I will send my people into the land and they will occupy it. And so we see this story of Israel as it's unfolding in the Old Testament. But why did Israel want a king? As we go back to Moses as their representative, we see a pattern that occurred in the life of Israel. This pattern I think you're going to be somewhat familiar with. And this pattern begins with obedience up at the top. Go to that next slide. I think it's the next one, Karen. There we go. You see obedience to God. God, That's where we start. That's where the children of Israel started. They thought it was really great that God would give them a deliverer to take them out of Egypt in Moses. But what would happen is the children of Israel would continue to repeat this pattern. They would repeat this pattern throughout their time with Moses and into the period of what we call judges and then into the period of the kings that we're going to begin talking about today. But we have to set up the story as we're going to look at throughout the next several weeks and look at Old Testament kings. We have to set up how they do this. It begins with obedience. But then from obedience, we get diverted. Our attention is drawn to something other than God. Does that happen to anybody in here that our attention gets drawn off of where we know that God has us to go and our attention gets diverted? It happens to all of us and it leads to a place that we call disobedience. Once we're in a disobedient place, God then desires to seek our attention and to get our attention back on him. He did this in the children of Israel by usually sending someone who would be an oppressor. Sometimes it was an individual. Sometimes it was a whole nation that would come against them in war. Sometimes it was famine or other tragedies that would go on in their life. But some type of judgment or oppressor would come into their life. And it would lead them to a place of repentance. We know that repentance is turning. Turning from our sin and turning back to God. And the cycle would begin to come back around. Which would lead them to God raising up a leader, a judge, a king, a prophet. He would raise up someone like Moses who would lead them back to obedience with God. Now I call this the take another lap syndrome Because that's what happened with the children of Israel. As they would be obedient to God, God would bring them back around. And for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. God would bring them back around. And you remember, they went. They sent spies into the land. And only Caleb and Joshua came back and said, we can take the land. The other 10 spies said, we can't because there are giants in the land. And God said, you being disobedient, take another lap. Take another lap around Mount Sinai. And when you come back around, I'll ask you the question again. You'll take the exam one more time. And we'll find out whether you've learned your lesson or not. not. And for 40 years, they started taking those laps. Joshua, eventually, they learned their lesson. Joshua, God raised up and he put them back in the cycle of obedience. They went into the land and from Joshua all the way to the writer that we experience today, Samuel, we have a period called the Judges. And in Judges chapter 2, you can look at this cycle that is continually seen. Judges two eleven through 15. I'm not going to read it today, but I want to encourage you to go back and look at it. So Judges two verses eleven through fifteen talk about this cycle and how this cycle can continue. So, hang on just a second. <clears throat> this is all. This is coming from golf yesterday and all the pollen and different things. Actually, I've got James. Would you give me that water right there? Thank you, sir. You were already heading that direction. Did I say that we show our weaknesses? Right. So. Whether we're missing cords, Jason, or we're clearing our throat, we're trying to to do that. So God continually shows them this. So in Judges 2, we see the passage unfold and it shows us just this, how God led the children of Israel to a place where they needed a judge to be lifted up and to draw them back into relationship with Him. So we see this pattern continually. Does it sound like anybody you know? I know these are the patterns that we continually go through. The question is, God does not lead us necessarily to people who are going to lead us back to God, but God leads us continually back to His Word. So what I would encourage you as we look at this and look at the Old Testament and look at this process, I want you to ask yourself this question. How do I see myself involved in this process? Where am I at in this take another lap syndrome? Am I at a place of obedience? Has my attention been diverted? Is God sending something into my life so that I get to see That really it's him that I need to be dependent upon? Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not saying that every bad thing that comes into your life is always designed by God to do this. There are still bad things that happen to very good people simply because there is evil in the world. So don't mistake me in saying everything, sometimes something bad happens to you, that it is God's judgment in your life. But whether it's good or whether it's bad, God always wants to devote or divert our attention back to Him, so that we're living in a place of obedience. But you've got to understand this cycle if you're going to understand the Old Testament and how the lives of these characters are continually being drawn back to a place where they're obedient to God. Why did Israel want a king? Well, they wanted a king because they wanted a representative. They wanted someone at times that they could blame. Why do we want our elected officials at times? We put them into office, or we blame other people for putting them into office, and then we want to blame someone for what's going on in our world. Why do we do that? It's not just one person's problem. It's all of our problem, but we want to blame other people. We want to make someone else the representative of what we are experiencing. Even as a pastor, I understand that one of the reasons that that Bart is here, that I am here, that our other pastoral staff is here it's because we're to be God's representatives, continually pointing us back to His Word. You don't have to go through us to get to God anymore. That is an Old Testament system. You can now go directly to Jesus Christ. But we are still a representative of not only His passion, but His authority, and certainly to teach us where we want to go from this point. I'm so excited about what, what God is doing here at EBC. I'm excited about what some things that are coming up in the fall. Because I want you to fall in love with God's Word. We're going to be doing a couple of classes in the fall, even on Sunday mornings, alternating with, uh, with our services, just on how to study God's Word. Christianity 101, how to continually hear from God, because here's our goal. Our goal as God's representatives and His servants is this. I love this view of a shepherd. Have you ever seen a shepherd in a field with sheep? Okay, taking a sheep... By its neck and taking grass and cramming it into their throat. Has anybody ever seen that, okay? I do not see a hand. That is not what a shepherd does. Instead, what a shepherd is supposed to do, and we are, what we as pastors are designed to do, is to help you get to a place where you can begin to feed yourselves. A shepherd finds the pasture and leads the sheep into the pasture. And what our desire through this series and through all the things that we want, desire to do this fall is to lead us as the people of God into a place where we begin to feed ourselves. But as we look at the Old Testament, God desired for the people of Israel to want a king. Many people believe that it was actually disobedience of the children of Israel to even desire a king because God had set up this theocracy. But God desired the people to have a king. Deuteronomy says this. I just want you to listen to this. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20 say says this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Now that's key. God says He will give them a king. He will give them a representative. But it's not supposed to overtake the theocratic rule of God. God simply wants to give His word to this representative. And as they lead and follow after God, God will bless them. And what you're going to see in the lives of the kings of Israel is that many times they led the people towards God and many times they led led them away from Him. We're going to see that. One from among you, he says, from your brothers, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return again from that way. He shall not acquire for himself many wives. Okay, I'm not saying anything. But one wife is enough, okay? So otherwise, if you have more than one wife, what, they, what he's speaking of is political uh, marrying into other kingdoms and having other wives because they're going to lead your heart astray. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. What the Bible is saying is, I want you to have a king, Israel. But it has to be the king that I choose. It has to be the king that I place over you. Because when you have that king, they will lead you in a way that I desire for you to go. Then he says this. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be to him that he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words, all my statutes, and doing them. You see, what God says to these kings is this. You need to have humility. You need to lead in a humble way. And matter of fact, you're going to write all the deeds and things that I show you and what I encourage you to do. I brought these this morning. Over the last three years of my life, these are my journals. I use 50 to 75 cent journals that fold back on themselves, little composition notebooks. And in this, I write... What God is teaching me and telling me. You want to know why I write that? Because there are days that I don't feel like God is speaking to me. And on those days, I can go back and read this. Just like these kings would write in journals. There are days in which that I know that my heart has been disobedient. And I go back to the places where I know that I was being obedient so that I can hear from God what He desires for me. And I want to encourage you, because I've encouraged you over the last several weeks, different spiritual disciplines. We talked about two weeks ago, memorizing Colossians chapter 3. That's still my challenge for any teenager, adult, and that's something I'm trying to do myself over this summer, is to memorize Colossians chapter 3. Last week we talked about sharing our faith and working through our circle of influence. I want to encourage you to continue that. Who are the people that God has placed in your life that He wants you to be able to share with? And then this is journaling. I've got to confess to you, I'm not very good at it. This is literally over the last two years of my life right here. And that's not a lot of writing because this is big, big ruled paper right there. You see that it's got lots of big lines and I write big in it so I can feel like I've gone a long way. I'm not good at writing in this. But I have committed myself To being more and more consistent. Because there are days that I don't feel like God is speaking to me. And I need to remember. So the whole process of the Old Testament is to help these kings to remember that God is the one who's in charge. And it's not them. Why did Israel want a king? They wanted someone to be representative of them. It's what I call the step back syndrome. Okay? So here's how that works. You've probably experienced it. If you're parents, you've experienced this because... As your kids do something that you don't appreciate, I know wives and husbands, you tend to go, well, that's from your side of the family. So it's kind of the, okay, that, that's the step back thing. It's on you. Okay, that's not me. That's you. And that's what we want. We want representatives who will take what it is that we've experienced and so that we can sometimes pass blame to them. That's what the children of Israel wanted. They wanted a king that they could say, it's his fault. It's not our fault. But God wants to say to us today, I'm speaking to you. Now listen and obey. So this is the reason why God set up this opportunity for Israel to have a king. Now we come today to this one king. He is the first king of Israel. His name is Saul. And I want to tell you just a little bit of the story of how Saul came to be king. Saul came to be king because He initially did not want to be king at all. Matter of fact, he hid from Samuel. When Samuel came to anoint Saul as king, you can imagine being the first king, he wanted it to be a big pomp and circumstance. And so he paraded him through the streets there in Israel. And then he had him kneel down and he anointed him with oil. And then later, as he would go to other towns, he would want to announce him as king. And in one particular instance... It was as if Saul did not want to be king. He hid, the Bible says, he hid among the baggage. He hid in the baggage claim area. That's where Saul went to hide because he didn't want this responsibility. But Samuel, who was the last judge before God initiated all of these kings that we're going to be talking about, he was the last one and Saul did not want to be king. So here is Saul, not desiring this, but Samuel, the last prophet, God wanted him to understand and tell the people what a king would be like. And here's what he said. First Samuel 8, verses 17 and 18. He said, here's what your king will be. Your king will take a tenth of your flocks. You will be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. What we see in Old Testament kings is we see really a mirror of ourselves. We see their emotions, we see their obedient times, we see their disobedient times. But God tells, through Samuel, tells the people of Israel, look, when you follow these kings and they're leading you away from me, they will take all that you have. They will leave you empty. When you follow leaders that are in it for themselves, it will lead you empty. When you follow your own passions and your desires, and you do not follow after me with God's heart, with a heart after Him, you will lead yourselves to emptiness. So God wanted to continually show the children of Israel this. Well, as the story of Saul goes on, we see that Saul becomes king. And as he becomes king, what we discover in Saul is that he is disobedient. He goes almost to the place of obedience, but then he shrinks back. Here's how he does this in a couple of instances. One, he didn't want to be king, but the second place is in First Samuel chapter 13. And by the way, you can find the story of Saul all throughout 1 uh, Samuel, but it starts in chapter 9 and goes through chapter 31. So if you want to read the whole story of Saul, I want to encourage you to do that. I'm having to kind of tell the story today because we can't read chapters 9 through 31. Well, I guess this is a second service. We could if you guys would like to hang around today. No, okay. But as he as he becomes king in chapter 13, one of the things that Saul does is God tells him to sacrifice after he's Won a military victory. But as he does this, he says to wait for Samuel, who is the priest, who is the final judge. He says, wait for Samuel. But Saul doesn't wait for Samuel. He gets impatient. Anybody deal with impatience in here? Okay, I see a few hands and others who should be up. I see all those. So we deal with impatience. We see that in Saul. Saul gets impatient. And he goes ahead and he sacrifices without waiting for Samuel. Now, to us, that doesn't seem like such a huge thing. But it was a huge thing in God's eyes. And God says, Saul, you will no longer be king. Your sons will not be king. I have raised up another, which is David, which we're actually going to talk about next week. So here is Saul, a king, but yet disobedience. We see in Saul huge decisions that he makes that are the wrong decisions. One of those is in First Samuel 15, verses 2 and 3. It says this. This is where we see the justice of God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek... Now, we're going to tell, I'm going to tell you the story of Amalek in just a second. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Is that pretty clear? Okay, this means yes, this means no. Just devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. What God says is, you are going to absolutely annihilate all of the Amalekites. You're going to take their king. You're going to destroy them. Now, for us on this side of the Old Testament, we look back at that and say, why would God do that? I don't understand why a God of love and mercy, how God could actually do that. What you have to begin to understand, though, is how a God of love and mercy is also a God of justice. That He's waited for the Canaanites to build up this level of disobedience to Him until the point where they now... Can be destroyed. The Amalekites were one of these folks. Now, who were the Amalekites? The Amalekites were a group of people who, when Israel was coming out of Egypt, they did some very horrible things. One of the things that they did was noted in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. Moses writes that I do not want you to forget what this group of people did. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way. When you were faint and weary, he cut off your tail. Those who were lying or lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Here's what Amalek did. As the children of Israel were coming out, and I can relate to this because on the 14th hole yesterday in 95 degree heat, I was lagging behind. Okay, So I understand what that was like. But here's what Amalek did. He took all... as." The children of Israel were coming out. Keep in mind, there were up to 3 million people who were leaving Egypt. And as they're coming out, the people who were last would have been those who were sick, those who were older, and sometimes those who did not have parents. So orphan, even orphan children. And what Amalek would do is he would go back behind and those who were lagging behind, he would kill and pick off. And he was, in essence, saying to God, I'm more powerful than... Than you. These are your people, but I am destroying them. And Moses says, do not forget what this individual did. Now keep in mind, Saul, in what he does, he does not destroy. He ends up not destroying the Amalekites. But the whole process is this. God told him to do so, and he stopped short of being totally obedient to God. Here's what the result was. Later in the history of Israel, when they go into captivity... There's a queen called Esther that God raises up. We have the book of Esther that tells her story. There was a man named Haman. Haman was the guy who wanted to kill and execute, literally exterminate all of the Jews in Esther's time period. You know who Haman was a descendant of? King Agag of the Amalekite. If Saul had been obedient to do what he was supposed to do, the Israelites wouldn't be going through that. And down through the generations, there has been continually war and bloodshed between the Israelites and this group of people. Why? Saul was not obedient. Saul was not the king that God desired for him to be. So that's why Saul's decision is so important. It's sometimes hard for us to understand why God would annihilate this group of people. But we don't have his view of history. We need to understand that, that God's purposes are higher than our purpose but what do we see in the life of Saul we see this this point partial obedience is still disobedience when God shows you something to do and we stop short of doing it completely it's still disobedience in his eyes God says partial obedience is disobedience it's things like this what do we know that God has told us to do If God has given you children, you know that you are to raise them in the spirit and admonition of God. We know that even though we have our nursery and our children's ministry, sometimes we ask God, God, is it my responsibility to work there? Is it my responsibility to do that? We don't have to have a word from God. We're not listening for God to say, go into the nursery and serve me. That is not what God is going to do. He's given you children. He's given you responsibility. He's placed you here. We are to be obedient To what God has called us to do. What about in the area of giving? God has told us that that tithing is a responsibility that we have as believers. This is not something that we have to ask God. God, what percentage do you want me to give of all of of what you've given me? We don't have to ask God that. And yet we need to understand that partial obedience is still disobedience. Here's what God has done. God has told Saul that he is to destroy the Amalekites. And Saul destroys almost all of them, but he keeps the king and he keeps all of the sheep that are especially the best of all the sheep. And he says that he wants to sacrifice them. And Saul does all this and here comes Samuel. Samuel is on his way and he's going to judge whether Saul has done what God has told him to or not. And Saul gets excited because he sees Samuel coming. And he wants to go and share all that God has done. And Samuel says, Saul, have you been obedient? And Saul begins to say, yes, I've been obedient to what God has called me. And Samuel says, stop. Okay, now parents, you know what this stop typically is. It's when you've asked your kids, you know what the truth is. And you ask your kids what the truth is. And they don't know that you really know. And so they start talking and telling you a lie. And you finally say, stop. You are just getting yourself in more trouble than you want to get into. Just stop where you're at. I'm going to stop you right there. And here's what Samuel says to Saul. He says, stop. Verse 16. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. Don't you know Saul is shaking in his boots? I am going to tell you what the Lord has said to me. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord has sent you on a mission and said very clearly, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Do you see the cycle of the Old Testament in Saul? Here's the more important thing. Do you see yourself in Saul? Here was Saul's biggest issue. And we're going to deal with several characteristics over the upcoming weeks of these different kings. Saul's big issue was pride. Pride. I want you to think of your own heart. How many sins... Begin with pride? With us thinking that our ways are better than God's ways? On what we want to do is better than what God wants to do? Think, as, think of this as you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Do you remember what it was about? As Adam sinned, what did he do? He blamed Eve. And he not only blamed Eve, he said, It was the woman who gave me of the fruit to eat. Of the woman, what? That you gave me. What? Even at the Garden of Eden, what we see is Adam is blaming not only Eve, but he's blaming God who gave Eve to him. And in Saul's life, pride is the key issue. What did this result in? So here are the practical points. I just have several practical things that I want you to think of. Now, as you think of these, the way I've designed this is I want to want to give you the point, but then I want to give you a key question that you can write down. And you can just evaluate your own heart and life as you process through these. And I encourage you to, again, go to 1 Samuel 9-31. through And as you see these elements in Saul's life, I want you to ask yourself, how do I see these elements and how do I see these particular sins in my own heart as well? Saul's pride resulted, first of all, in self-promotion rather than humility. In self-promotion rather than humility. What Saul did says, immediately after he had won this victory, he went to Carmel, which was a city. And behold, he set up a monument for himself. Saul set up a monument for himself. Why do you think he kept the king, Agag, alive? Instead of being obedient to God, he left him alive. And I believe it was for this. He knew that he could get political uh, equity out of keeping the king alive. By keeping this king, even though God had told him to destroy completely all the Amalekites, he kept their king so that maybe he could set up to other nations and say, I've kept him, we've destroyed them, I've got one ace in the hole here, so now you guys, as you look at this king, don't you understand that God is with us and that we are something to be reckoned with? This is kind of how I felt last night as I drove up in our parking lot at 8 o'clock. And Krav Maga, they were doing a a uh, self defense class in our parking lot. And as I'm driving up, literally, they have all these people who are attacking each other with clubs and teaching self defense moves. I mean, it was a wild scene last night as I saw it in our parking lot. And I thought, man, nobody's going to come to EVC and try to rob or steal anything from us because they see all these people with clubs in our parking lot learning self defense. Well, that's a great thing. That's kind of what. What Saul saw in keeping this one king alive is that he had political equity. The other thing he did is he went and he set up a monument to let everyone know this victory that they had had over the Amalekites. This is Saul's pride. Saul's pride results in self-promotion rather than humility. Here's the question I want you to begin to ask yourself. In what ways do we tend to take credit for things That God really has done. If you look at your own heart and life. What promotion. What idea. Do you tend to take credit for. That was really. Simply God doing this in you. That's where our pride comes out. When we look at these Old Testament kings. I want us to look at the elements and say. But what of that is present within me. How do I take credit for things God has done. The second thing we see is. Saul's pride is reflected in blaming others. If you look through verse 15, several times, or chapter 15 of, of 1 Samuel, several times, when Samuel says, why have you done this, Saul? What does, Sa- what does Saul say? He says, the people wanted those sheep. The people wanted that king. The people wanted the sacrifice. It wasn't me, Samuel. It wasn't me. Yes, I'm, the, I'm God's representative, but I was just doing what the people Wanted me to do. How do we blame others? Have you thought about it? That's the question I want to ask. How do we pass off our mistakes as other people's fault? When you look at Saul's life, what I want you to see is someone who was human just like us. And who struggled. And how do you pass off your mistakes as somebody else's fault? And one thing I want you to, to see in this is, it's not that... When people have hurt us in the past, that it hasn't left scars. I know that. Many, many people don't go to church anymore because past experiences that they've had in church where they've been hurt. I think of how abuse leaves scars within us. I think of how alcoholism in our family leaves patterns for many, for many of us to follow. It's very difficult. But how do we blame others and not take responsibility for ourselves and say still, God, what do you want to do in my heart and life? In Paul's, in Saul's life, it resulted in him blaming others. The third thing I want you to see is pride in Paul, in Saul's life. We were doing Paul last week. Today we're doing Saul. In Saul's life, it resulted in a lack of confidence, which is ultimately a mistrust of God. 1 Samuel 15, verse 17 says, And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you as king over Israel. Here's the important thing. See, there's two sides of pride. One side of pride, Saul exhibited in building monuments to himself. The other side of pride is the one that most of us struggle with many times but yet we don't realize it it's a lack of confidence that god really did make me the way that he made me and i can trust him in that do you ever deal with that a lack of confidence that god can really use you that was really saul saul's desire to win other people over his desire for other people to like him as king his desire to see that was really Something that came from this lack of confidence that Saul exhibited. This lack of confidence that God could really do this and that could could do it in his life. And I've got to be honest with you. As a pastor, this is something that I've struggled with. This is the underside of pride. That God, you're not big enough. You're not powerful enough. You can use other people, but you can't use me. As a matter of fact, the very reason that I think that I am here at EVC, right now during this time, and Bart and I shared this as as we talked about this, as we talked about him going on this sabbatical, one of the things that I did not experience was I had a fear or a lack of confidence that God could actually use me in the week-to-week speaking elements of ministry. I have spoken over the last 20 years in ministry, but not on a week-to-week basis. That was something that I was very scared of. And it's as if, as Bart and I talked about Him taking this sabbatical, it's as if God said, Randy, it is time for you to step up. This lack of confidence I have experienced, and I know many of you experience the same thing. It's the underside of pride that God, do I really do I really love the me that you made? God, do I really believe that you can use me as a leader? Some of you in this group that are sitting here today, some of you are thinking, God, can you really use me to to teach students? To teach children, can you use me as a life group leader? That's for the really spiritual people to do. No, that is something that God wants to give you confidence to walk in. He wants to give you confidence to go into your workplace and to share your faith. with We deal with this underside of pride. Do you see how it's the one side of pride is the external look at me, but the other side of pride is, God, you're not big enough to handle my weaknesses. You see how that is a wrong view of God. You need to love the you that God made. So here's the question then for us. Do you thank God for how He put you together? Do you see yourself as a mistake? Some of you have walked around with that woundedness for too long. That you viewed your life as a mistake God made. God does not make mistakes. He's placed you here for this time. He's placed you in that marriage that you're in. He's placed you as the parent of that child. He's placed you as the child of those parents. God does not make mistakes. It's one lesson that we can learn from the life of Saul. Saul's pride also resulted in disobedience and poor decisions based on fear. When you're afraid... We tend to make bad decisions. And Saul did this. He made bad decisions when he was afraid. 1 Samuel 15 verse 22 says, And Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as in sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. Here's what he's saying. Saul, you kept these sheep and all the best all the choice items of the Amalekites when I told you to destroy them. You kept them in order to sacrifice to God. In other words, you're going to do this act even though it's in direct opposition of what I told you to do and you think that your sacrifice is going to overcome your lack of obedience. For some of us, we do the same thing. I'm going to go to church on a regular basis to overcome the elements of sin that's in my life. God says, that's not what this is about. You've got grace in the cross of Christ. Your obedience is your sacrifice. When you obey God, when you walk day in and day out in what God calls you to do, that obedience is better than any sacrifice that you can give. And Saul understands this as Samuel tells him. Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Here's the question when you're dealing with disobedience, when you have poor decision-making because of fear, when are you afraid to take a stand because it's unpopular, even though you know that it's the right thing to do? When you know that something is what God desires for you to do, are you willing to take a stand on that rather than shirking back and not listening and not being obedient? What God says is, To obey is better than your sacrifice. In relationships, Matthew talks about this. He says, it's actually the words of Jesus that Matthew gives us. As Jesus said, if you have a brother and you have an an issue going on between the two of you, it's better for you to leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and make that right. Because relationships is what God is about. God says to obey me is better than any sacrifice. So, that question. How are you afraid? Or where where are you afraid to take a stand? Even though it's unpopular. Because you know it's the right thing to do. Two final things. First of all, pride also resulted in a mistrust of everyone around him. It's what we call paranoia. We see this in the life of Saul. If you look at Saul... God tells him that he's going to be removed from being king and he's not going to have his son is not going to be king and he anoints David to be the next king. And what you see in Saul is he, him attempting to take the life of David on at least 3 occasions. Why? Saul's paranoid. Because his mis, his pride has led him to mistrust others. How do you do this? Are you willing to trust other people? If you find yourself ever in a place where you do not trust those people around you, I want you to think about your life and put yourself in that place and say, God, is this a lack of trust that I have for you? Because I'm looking at everyone else around them. I think other people have it in for me. I'm getting to this level of paranoia. God, what do you want me to do? You want me to follow you. And the last thing in the life of Saul is that his pride resulted in what we call using divination... To make decisions. Look at this. This is a very interesting. This is where the actual things of Saul go to the really weird. God wanted Saul to depend upon him for his decisions. But Saul actually goes way against God to the point of asking a medium to pull up the life, the body, or the the spirit of Samuel to give him one more message. 1 Samuel 15 tells us what this was was like. It says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity or idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Here's what Samuel says to Saul. Saul, your rebellion is just as bad as someone who would actually go to the link to go to a medium to find out what it was that I wanted them to do. And your rebellion, presumption. In other words, you're presuming that God would rather have the sacrifice of these animals that I told you to destroy because they're part of the Amalekites. I told you to destroy them and for you to presume that you should sacrifice them instead of being obedient, that is as, as as bad as idolatry. You see Saul obeyed the word of the Lord for much of his kingdom. And you go to the to chapter 28 of 1 Samuel and you see how even Saul went to this level that from back in 1 Samuel verse, uh, or chapter 15, we, we thought it was so far removed from what Saul would do. He actually calls a witch and he brings her in and he says, So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. He and two men with him. And they came to the woman. Her name, her she was called the witch of Endor by night. And he said, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Now, I would be I would be one of those people who don't really believe in ghosts and don't really believe in spirits and that type of thing. But here it is in Scripture and what this witch does, this medium, she actually calls forth Samuel and his spirit. And Samuel prophesies to Saul, that that day he would die and that the kingdom would be taken from him. Saul sought divination to make his decisions because of fear. So here's my question for you. Where do you gather your decisions from? Is it God's Word? Is it something that's true? Is it something that does not change? Or do you look at all the circumstances of life Do you look at the horoscopes? Do you look at the things that that our world casts around us that says, these are decisions, this is the way you can make decisions? Or do you follow God's Word? Learn this from the life of Samuel. Learn this from the life of Saul. That it is not by any other means that you should be making decisions than by being in God's Word and hearing from Him And saying, God, what is it that you want me to learn? What is it that you want me to do? You see, pride manifests itself in our life in many ways. Sometimes it's a sense of pride where we want people to see us. Sometimes it's a sense of blaming others. Sometimes it's a sense of, I don't have confidence that God can do these things in my life. What is it in your life? What are these life lessons that we can learn from these Old Testament kings? Some are good kings. We're going to look at one next week as we look at David who has a heart after God's own heart. On Father's Day, we're going to talk about how David was a father king. But from the life of Saul, we can see what it's like to be disobedient. Sadly, the story of Saul ends As he loses in battle, and he and his son are both killed. But that didn't have to be the story of Saul. And my question for you is, what's going to be your story? Are you going to be the obedient as you learn from God, or are you going to be the disobedient? Let's pray if we could this morning. Father, I thank You for this character, this living, breathing character in Saul. That we can look at His life and see our own lives imprinted. We can see our own pride and our own weakness on display for others to see. Father, I pray for everybody here this morning, Lord, that You would give us a heart that would be an obedient heart after You. God, I pray that You would show Yourself to us. And that we would know and acknowledge what it is that You desire for us to be and to do. God, if there's somebody here who does not have a relationship with You, Father, even in the life of Saul, we can see what disobedience leads to. So, Father, but You call us in the grace and mercy of Christ. You call us to Yourself. So, Father, I pray for that one who may not know You today, that they might choose You as their God King, their representative, their one who took upon Yourself our sin. God, I pray that they would come to know You today. Lord, for the rest of us who struggle with control, with pride, with lack of confidence, with blaming others, God, I pray that You'd speak to our heart. But Lord, as we see this in this character of Saul, we can also see how You desire to love us through it and to build us up to be the people of God that You've called us to be. That's my prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen.